Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Rob Conley, Nick Seidler, and Adam Balderstone, and this is our uh, latest session of Game Lab. We are going to be covering the afterlife in gaming and talking about what happens when your characters die, but we'll also be talking about Nick's experience at GaryCon. So, uh, Nick, why don't you walk us in with your, uh, you know, with your report? Sure. Uh... Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened. Because of Gary Cott, I unfortunately missed Game Lab 3. So uh, I wasn't blowing off our Game Lab. I was uh, just gaming. So I think that's always a plus. So um, I, I had a chance to go to Gary Con 10. So this is the 10th Gary Con. Uh, and it was uh, March 8th through 11th uh, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin at the, uh, the Lake Geneva Grand. Um, which is kind of, it's the old Playboy Club in Lake Geneva, actually. So a little bit of history there. And uh, also kind of interesting because that was the home to Gen Con 10. So this being Gary Con 10, Gen Con 10 was held in the same place, So, uh, which was kind of fun. Um, and those people who don't know what Gary Con is, Gary Con is a convention that was started by Luke Gygax, one of uh, Gary Gygax, the inventor of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, his uh, one of his sons started the event uh, the year after his father passed <laughs> away because at his father's funeral, um, a bunch of people got together and actually played games and celebrated the life of Gary Gygax. So the following year, uh, Luke Gygax put together a convention. Uh, it started very small. This year they had record attendance. I want to say they had about 2,300 people there, uh, which is... To, to now the biggest attendance they've had, and I think 600 more than they had last year. Uh, and it's a great convention. I highly recommend it. Um, one of the things that I think are particularly neat, and I'll tell you some of the highlights of the convention, uh, the, the best part about the convention is almost everybody who used to work at PSR in Lake Geneva returns, and it becomes a reunion of sorts to those people who were very involved in the early days of gaming. And so, uh, and the way Gary Con registration works is when you sign up, there's different levels that you can sign up, but you get like gold or silver tokens, and gold tokens can be used to sign up for games uh, that some of the luminaries in role-playing game history are running, okay? So, um, I, I, with a standard silver membership, I got two gold coins that I could use to sign up, and I signed up for an adventure with Merle Rasmussen, who is the inventor of the top-secret role-playing game, which came out in 1981, and so I had a chance to play in a game with him, and he runs great games, and he's also one of the writers for the new top-secret New World Order game that just came out, so I had a chance to sit at the table, play the most recent iteration of Top Secret, uh, and, and had a really good time doing that. Um, so you could end up at a table with, uh, Ernie Gygax or Luke Gygax, um, you know, Mark Miller, who was the inventor of, of Traveler was there this year. So I had a chance to chat with him. He ran Traveler games. So nothing like being at the table with the guy who invents the game. Um, it was kind of fun. He actually did a, a session, which you had to roll up your characters and a lot of people might forget, but you can actually kill your character during character creation in Traveler. So just getting through character creation is one of those uh, kind of fun things. That you, um, another thing that I want to just, just talk about, which was particularly fun, there were two events that I, I really enjoyed on top of the, the game with Merle Rasmussen. Um, one was that Frank Metzer, um, who was a longtime TSR employee, Gary Gygax, its right-hand person, and did a lot of editing for TSR, but he's mostly well-known for writing the Dungeons & Dragons Red Box, the basic set of, of D&D. He actually opens his home on Wednesday night. And on Wednesday night, he actually uh, invites whoever's going to Gary Khan can come over to his house. Uh, he and his wife have opened the house. There's food there. There's like a suggested donation of $5 to... Just kind of help out with the food, but it's not required. And he does like a lot of cool stuff. And he demonstrated a brand new role-playing game that he was coming up with there. Uh, he gave away free copies of 
the the original like the play test for this game. He would sign them for you. He would uh, he he gave away uh, free dice the old the old kind of plastic wax D and D dice from like 1981. So you could get one or two free dice when you were there and kind of hang out and chill out. And it was really a great time. And even sold there's a, a pretty famous book by. Uh, Gary Gygax called Role Playing Mastery, which if you can even find one now, I highly recommend it. But um, <laughs> Frank had a case of these books left over from 1987 and was selling them for five dollars a piece. Wow. So there was no way I was passing up on that. So I spent my five bucks and got a a, a brand new mint copy of uh, the the Gary Gygax Role Playing Mastery book. Um, and the last, last thing, uh, the, another thing I want to mention was uh, there was a really great event that was run by uh, Bob Brinkman, um, who uh, he, he's done uh, writing for uh, Goodman Games and stuff, and he ran the first ever Cyborg Commando tournament in the U.S. And Cyborg Commando was the first game that Gary Gygax wrote, um, along with Frank Metzer and one other person, when they left TSR. And they created, uh, I think it was New Infinities, I think was the name of the company when they left TSR. And Cyborg Commando was sort of a cross between like Terminator and, uh, you know, kind of like the cyborg cyberpunk stuff that was going on in the 80s. And most people think of it as a game that's very complicated and hard to run and like you can't win. And I think Bob Brinkman and the other players that I played with, uh, were, were outstanding. They were like really good. It was a multi-round uh, tournament, and I was fortunate enough to make it to the final table. Um, and the players we had were great, and it was just a fun game. And you know, Bob made it cool by making sure that there were prizes for everyone. Everyone at the final table won a box set of Cyborg Commando from 1987. So uh, that was pretty cool. So. I apologize for doing a lot of talking. We usually have a lot of discussion here, but I kind of want to give you guys the report of what that experience was like. Um, maybe you guys have some questions, and I can tell you what it's like if you go to Gary Cox. So, well, I'm just jealous <laughs> <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. Yep. I always want to. I want. I heard about it when it was in year three or something, and I always wanted to go, but it just never worked out. I mean, it's my son's birth, my eldest son's birthday when they hold it, and. We'll see whenever I get out there. But did you see my uh, city-state map at the uh, Black Blade table by any chance? Ooh, I apologize. I didn't. I didn't get over there. So I no, I did not see that. Not, yeah, not heard, so you had a presence there, Rob. Uh yeah, Black Blade uh, Publishing. They mm -hmm. they work with Ostrich a lot, and they sell a lot of OSR stuff. But uh, they graciously uh, gave. Asked, ordered, uh, have me sent them some city-state map on consignment, and uh, they put it on the table. Apparently, they sold out the first day. What, what, I should have sent more copies. What, what format what was the map see. in? Just out of curiosity, like was it a was it a fold-out map? Was it in a book form? Uh, it's uh, it's it's actually published like the original map. It's a uh, thirty-four inch by forty inch forty-four inch map. And it's printed in four sections because mainly because RPG now can only print eight, yeah. 12, 18 inch by 12 inch poster, or in my case, 12 <laughs> inch by 18 inch. And uh, so what I did was I formatted the map so there was considerable overlap uh, between the sections of mm. like two inches or something. And, uh, and I uh, got permission from the Bledsaw yeah. to release it. And I comped in uh, all the Kickstarter backers because it wouldn't be right for me to force them to pay for it. So I gave them at cost copies for the print and gave them the PDF for free. And uh, but sold sold it for everybody else. And uh, it's done quite well. It's silver on RPG now. And and so anyway, Black Blade said, "Hey Rob, I saw this. Can you send us copies?" And we talked about it. We'll say we'll try ten. And uh, so I sent them some copies, and they all sewed. The only thing we'll do differently is next time I'll bag them up because apparently there was confusion over the fact that there were actually there's five maps per package. There, 
one, there's four maps forming up each a quarter of the city, and then I shrunk it down to to make a single smaller 18 by 12 map. So you get you get five posters per per the price on uh, RPG now. That so, formatting's tricky. I get a lot of requests for large size maps of various kinds, and it's it's a it's very difficult to do in the POD format. Um, there are two. Well, I tell you, I'm very happy with the RPG Now poster printer. I mean, it's, well, I think it's, the options have that, expanded lately, haven't they? Have they increased the the options on on printing for that kind of thing, or am I just um, way nah, behind? It's been in place on... for the last two years, mm. as far as I can tell. Okay. They uh, they axed a card format because the, the, I guess it wasn't printing rights, so and mm. they substituted some other paper type. But okay. the posters have been the way they are, and uh, it's only recently, with the city-state and now the upcoming Waterlands map that I'm going to do for the Kickstarter, uh, that I, I got to play with it, and I'm quite happy with it. There, I there mean, was... this is a podcast, otherwise I'll be showing people the map. <laughs> yeah. But We can put a there... link in. Remind me to put a link in. What was that, Nick? Okay. Well, I was, I was going to say there were a number of people who are selling maps, so it's quite possible maybe I did actually see that. Um, because there were a couple tables of people who had maps. I'm just not, I didn't know that you had done that one. So that's kind of interesting. So I, I also should give one other shout out. And that was for that Cyborg Commando tournament. There was one other game master I had in the earlier round who I thought did a great job. And that was Kurt Rausch. And, and he was there. I just want to make sure he gets the credit that was due to him because he ran uh, our table the first uh, round of that before Bob took over, who's also amazing. So, well, uh, you know, I was going to say one of the things I want to also let people know about Gary Khan is if you're trying to get like stuff signed, that's the place to go. So, a lot of people will carry around their old school books, and everyone there who's attending is happy to sign the books. So, a lot of the early artists are there. Um, you know, are there, I, are there any know, Ravenloft people there? By any chance, are, are there what any Ravenloft that? people there that you know of? Absolutely, yeah. So okay. I, might, um, I might I might give you stuff to get signed next time you go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, for for instance, James Louder, who was the oh, yeah. uh, book editor of the Ravenloft, uh, non you know the the fiction book line. I I saw him there. He wrote uh, Night of the Black Rose, which is probably the best book in the series, in my opinion. Yes, he did. So. And, and he'll actually be at a convention uh, at my university in two weeks, a gaming convention called uh, Consinity, which happens on April 21st at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. He'll be there, too, if anybody's looking to bump in. So. Yeah, good thing about role-playing game designers. None of them are so jaded in their celebrity that they're at the point where they don't want to do autographs anymore. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> Um, hey, did you see the uh, Into the Borderland that Goodman Games put in? I, I, absolutely. So, yes. Uh, that that was kind of like a really great thing to see the the fifth ed version of Keep on the Borderlands kind of expanded. They did have that there. It looked great. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was actually very cool. So, and did you, was, was, how different was it? It was... First off, have you been there in previous years? I I, I couldn't remember. I, if you... I had. This was my fifth year, so I've been to half of them. Okay. So, so yeah. So how would you say it's changed over those those five years that you've been there? Um, the size. The first year I went, it was only six hundred people. Mm -hmm. So, um, much more intimate. The beautiful thing about Gary Cotton, though, is while it's tripled in size since I started going, or even quadrupled in size. Um, it still feels like an intimate convention. So I, I st it reminds me of the very early days of Gen Con. I was fortunate enough to go to, I think, Gen Con 13 or something like that. And, you know, where you see the designers in the halls and they're talking and you can, or, or they're at a booth or they're just having food at the restaurant that's in the hotel and you can sit down with them and have a chat and, like, they're cool with it and they're excited to talk gaming. Um I think very few industries still have a lot of the people who help begin them around. And I think this is exactly, this is their, I think their favorite event, the one they all go to. Mm -hmm. And so you have this great opportunity to engage with people. And again, no one has a problem if you bring up, 
you know, three books for somebody to sign. Go, oh my God, I love your stuff. Like, please, you please. Oh, of course, I'll sign these. Yeah, no problem. Might be different if you roll up with a card and go, can you sign these? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, if, if you give somebody, you know, some work, it's, it's never... Yeah. Um, 50 copies of the same book that you plan to resell might be an issue. But, uh... Now, is it, yeah. is, it, is, it, is, it, is it entirely old school stuff? Is there new school material there? Well, What's the overall range of material? There's, there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, the, the newest version of, of uh, Pathfinder was being played there. There's... Uh, you know, I, I saw, I didn't run it myself, but there were some new editions uh, of the Doctor Who game that were being played. Um, I ran a Doctor Who game there, but because it has an old school feel, I run the FASA game there. Um, though I do kind of obviously talk about and talk up the, uh, the new Cubicle 7 game. But the, it, it's a mix of old and new. Um, I think it has a little bit of the old flavor because the old guard is there, so to speak. And... Uh, but yes, you can find all kinds of gaming there, you know, including miniatures. Cards are there too, but much less enforced. It's much more of a role-playing convention. So, miniatures and role-playing. Some of the old-school historicals are still there too. So, okay. So, did, did anybody else have other questions to ask about GaryCon? Actually, I, I would love it if we all got together and tried to go there and did our podcast there one day. It'd be great to see I think that would all. be fun. I think that if, if that we can manage cool. it, you know, uh, we will. It would be it would be an interesting experience. I think if definitely if I if I can go to a convention, that would be the one I would go to. I think. Um, and I would recommend that. I would recommend this convention for those people who have a long history of role playing games. Definitely, this is the one to go to. Well, you know, when you so. mentioned top secret you know that i like that brought back memories of you know yep. and, and i think top secret's funny because it's one of these games a lot of people probably didn't get the opportunity to play it as much but everybody seemed to at least own it um it, right. was, it was always a little bit of a harder sell for your D D group but yeah. uh but but that but i i remember holding up his copy of top secret i remember i don't know which version i had i i I must have bought mine in 87 or so, or like in the late 80s at some point. And it was a box set, and it had all kinds of like nice bells and whistles in there, as I remember. Um, yeah, I, I had a friend whose parents wouldn't let him buy D&D, so he ran Tom Secret. It was, it was the very edition that Rob has. That, that was actually so why I, I bought Tom Secret. That was one of my Oh, reasons. really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. so. Well, and I'll, I'll say this. Top Secret was my first ever role-playing game, and... I never thought, you know, I always saw the administrator, Merle Rasmussen's name inside of all the products. I never thought I'd ever sit at a table with him and get a chance to game it with the guy who invented the game, right? And it's interesting to be able to sit at a table with somebody who invents a game because as we get games and we play them and we put our own spin on them and we have our own feel for them, it's interesting to see how they envisioned the game being played when they first mm -hmm. came up with it. So... So, so was it was it anything unexpected, or did you did you like go, oh, so that's what that meant, or something like that? Well, well, it, it was actually a, like when I read Top Secret, I was very specific about the rules. So, like you know, Top Secret uses a percentile system, and when things happen in it, you assume like you're like, oh, I have to crunch this number and this number, and then I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to see what happens. When Merle Rasmussen ran the game, he was much more open and relaxed about the system <laughs> than I had thought you were supposed to play it. So he was just like, nah, it's all about the story, man. Don't like worry about crunching the numbers. Like, I'm just going to assign a number and that's what you're going to have to roll. And it was a very different experience from how, when I picked up the book, I would play the game. You know, I, I had a chance three years ago to be in one of the games that Ernie Gygax ran. And, and Ernie Gygax, the son of, of, of uh, um, Gary Gygax, was at the very first ever table, and he played the very first ever wizard in the game. And so, like, if you've heard of, like, Tensor's floating disc, he played the character Tensor and invented half the spells. And, you know, and so you're at a table with somebody who was at the first ever D&D game, and he's running it for you. And it just has a different feel than you might expect. And an example would be Ernie 
didn't map anything for us. He said, okay, you better find a mapper in your group. You guys walk down a 20-foot-long like foot long corridor that's five feet wide. It opens into a room that's hexagonal, you know, 40 feet across by 40 feet across, you know, with whatever, whatever. And if we weren't mapping it or if we didn't pay attention to it, like, uh, you know, we were lost. And our map got off pretty quick, right? <laughs> so to know that that was a part of the original game, this kind of sense of confusion and this, you know, you only know a little bit of what's going on, definitely brought a different element to the D&D than when my friends would map out the rooms for me and I would be like, oh, okay, I see where things are. I have a complete sense of knowing where I am. It definitely felt more dungeony to me, to be honest. So, um, but that's just an example. So, so and... Um... And yeah, so, oh, sorry, uh, a little echo there. Um, so yeah, so uh, just to move on to the the, the topic for discussion, um, we we're going to talk about afterlife in gaming. And I know this was sort of my topic, so if people need to expand a little bit, uh, it's because the the premise here is we try to do things that we actually do in our our, our real table. And so I didn't anticipate people were just going to go around killing their PCs in order to get an <laughs> It just so happens I had some deaths in my campaigns and I was able to... Uh, to, to utilize the afterlife. I also was able to run the afterlife just as sort of like a, uh, you know, like that's the concept of the, of the session type thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't know, uh, I guess, I guess first off did, you know, have you guys used the afterlife in your campaigns? Uh, you know, and, and we'll extend that to include things like, you know, characters becoming undead even, or, uh, like we were, uh, before the podcast, I was talking with Nick and we extended it to concepts like the matrix and doctor who and, and things like that. So. Yeah. Beyond having characters become undead, I can't think of anything I've done with the afterlife, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting topic though. It's it's something like when I look back on, it, I'm like amazed I haven't done more with it. <laughs> Had, I'm sorry, Rob. Were you going to say something? Um, the uh, I have a little bit of different take. Um, once, uh, basically, I I really don't have much in the way of outer planes in my campaign basically with the gods dwell on uh, pocket dimensions. There was this book by an author named, I think, Richard Holstock and called Mythico Woods. And uh, it kind of inspired me. Basically, the, the premise is, is that, I think it's called Ryhop Wood. There, there, there's this wood in this guy's uh, backyard as part of the local community. And it's, has a strange reputation and when you enter the woods in such a way it's like a whole nother world in there and uh while the author doesn't really go in a whole lot of detail other than the fact that you can literally spend years and go for hundreds of miles inside this wood i was thinking about how how is that possible so what i did is i came i called it i called it a woad uh w-o-l-d and basically, the way I drew it was, um, I take a you know an ordinary map, and I would draw a boundary on it, a small boundary. And then I would take another piece of map and draw that same shape, a boundary, but then draw a bigger boundary around that, and that will be the lower hemisphere of the world. And then on another map, I'll take the outer boundary again. So I need two maps to map out one of these: one of the lower hemisphere, one of the upper hemisphere, and you know, you could travel, if you enter in the woods the right way and keep on traveling, it's like way bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Mm. But if you just like, just narrowly hit it, it might seem a little strange, but you'll quickly exit the other side and not knowing anything was raw. So all my gods live in those woes. And I have about, I have 10 deities and I have about three of them mapped out. Uh, one of them I published uh, uh, under my point of light, the one for uh, Set, uh, or Seraph, I called him in that. In that. And uh, as far as the concept of the afterlife, they're like way stations. The spirits, when you die, you go there and you dwell there for a time. 
sort of like a, I guess, if you were a Catholic, it would be like a, like a purgatory, and then you move on. Everybody does that except for the elves, because the elves are, my conception of elves is, is they're tied to the world, and they can't, they can't leave it. They can't go elsewhere. Okay. And, uh, in fact, they don't die. If you die as an elf, you'll resurrect. In terms of the campaign, you're gone, but a century or uh, if you're a particularly notable elf, it might take several millennia before you reappear, but you will eventually uh, reappear now, after your spirit here healed. Now, is that, that kind that, of, is that stuff that you consider gameable, or is it something that your character dies and you just know the character goes there, but you wouldn't actually play out being in the world? Um, well, I never ran an all-elf campaign, mm -hmm. but... If I did, and, a, and the party had a total TPK, then that would have been a thing. Okay. That they were all, all appear uh, a century or two later, and the campaign picks up from that point. But the only part, only time it really did uh, come in game is when a PC liked it, and they decided to make their elf character a resurrected elf. And uh, he really lived a couple centuries ago, and he died... Uh, a traumatic death, and now he's resurrected, and he's back for more. And uh, a friend of mine used that. Uh, I have two friends, Dwayne uh, and Tim, and uh, Dwayne uh, used that in his game as well. So one of the PCs were uh, a resurrected elf as well. Uh, but no, the only effect is, is that uh, the handful of times that I went off playing to another world, Basically, I kind of play it like alternate worlds, mm -hmm. uh, Doctor Who, another, not just a, a pocket dimension, but it's, it's like a alternate reality. Uh, the elves can't go. Yeah, and, and, I, they, and they, I, they, they they get to the gate and they just bounce off and they can't leave. And, and I should and, say uh, that you also in this the, the, it's possible for in the in this discussion to apply to things like characters not actually dying but just going to these places like you know the paladin in hell kind of a thing um I, yeah I, I really de-emphasized that the one time it, i remember recall the one time i remember any details about they went to like this crossroads in to pick up some information about a threat and then they came mm -hmm. back and then uh actually it was my again my friend Dwayne who used that content more he he ran a campaign where it was uh, a bunch of people from another alternate reality invaded the world, and we had to deal with that in his campaign. And they had these floating cities. It was it was pretty trippy. He, <laughs> he did a pretty good job with it. Uh, you know, a little different take than what I did, but you know that's that's the point. It you know for having different referees. And uh, but by and large, my my planar adventures are actually journey into pocket realms. For example, uh, the, the domain of Set is a it's the swamp of Acreon, and uh, you know the players went and rescued King Arthur. My version of King Arthur is named King Arthos, and uh, they had to deal with the son of Set. I don't know if you guys remember the Dark Tower module, but I used the son of Set out of there as uh, the antagonist for that part of the adventure, and. Uh, one thing is, is that uh, while they were trying to approach, they ran into one of Seth's guardians, which was a giant dragon turtle. And the island that they were on was the back of the dragon turtle. And the dragon turtle became aware of the party and raised itself out of the water and said, I am taking you to my master. And uh, the party was like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And my, again, my friend Dwayne, who was playing at the time, said, I got it. And he pulled out his... He, they had the codex of the infinite planes. And the way it worked was uh, it allows you an alternate way into these pocket dimensions. And uh, it did it by creating a bubble around you and transporting everybody inside the bubble. So he went up and he asked the dragon turtle if he minds sitting on his head while, to read his book. And the dragon turtle said, uh, go, go. Yes, beauty human, you may do so. So he sat on the guy's head spent the uh, 10 minutes or so it is to activate the uh, the codex and sure enough the bubble appeared around him the dragon turtle's head and he popped him back himself to the sea state of the invincible overlord with a severed head of a dragon turtle the, the first time i encountered a dragon turtle as a player i really underestimated them based on the name alone 
<laughs> Nick, were you were you about to say something? It looked like you were. Uh... Yeah, you know, I, I, that was a great story <laughs> and tough to top, to be honest. But I was gonna give an example of uh, afterlife uh, opportunity or adventure that I played in, which was game mastered by a friend of mine named Matt Leninger. And he was actually very good at creating uh, afterlife scenarios. So um, in, in our game, my, my character who was a fighter, and this is D&D that we're talking about, um, pined for, had fallen in love with another character, right? But it was kind of like a secret. So my character was like secretly in love with this female uh, uh, um, cleric. And that female cleric actually uh, died or was taken to another plane of the afterlife. And so my character vowed, knowing that there were things like resurrection built into the game, to save this character. And it became this big part of the campaign where um, this fighter was trying to save this person. So we ended up um, in sort of an afterlife scenario where my player with the rest of the group, right? The rest of the group kind of knew then that this character like, was in love with this other character. And, you know, now it, truth came out kind of thing because it was always played very, like, subtly, you know. Um, and then they, the rest of the group agreed to try to go to different places in the afterlife to try to find uh, the lost love of this, this fighter character. Uh, and... The way my friend Matt played it, and, and I have to give him a lot of credit, was we went to a number of different planes, if you will, of the afterlife. So, you know, we went to the very happy afterlife. We went to, you know, a purgatory, if you will. And, of course, this character yeah. ended up being in one of the planes of hell, right? Like, you, that's the fun of the adventure is to go to the places you don't expect. And it wasn't because of the... the that the character was evil, but that the character, in order to save some other people had given her own life to save some other people in the planes of hell. So we ended up having to go to one of the planes of hell and confront the person who basically she was an indentured servant to, to try to rescue her. And uh, that was a really interesting game because especially when you have a good guy, you expect the good guys to be in the good places in the afterlife. And but good guys are willing to do good guy stuff, including trade themselves for somebody else who's rotting in hell. So um, Matt had a really great uh, uh, set of adventures that he had for us, in which the path in the afterlife was different than what we would have expected. And I think there's something great there as a tip to other game masters to say we all have an idea of what the afterlife is. None of us are there. So you can kind of play with that concept, and it doesn't have to be sort of like the traditional afterlife like everybody expects, but you can kind of play with the concept a little bit. So, Yeah, I, uh, I, you reminded me of a story, actually, where I have run a game involving the afterlife that I'd completely purged from my memory because it went really badly. So <laughs> I actually do have a story to share. This is a cautionary tale about how it can go very wrong. But... Uh, yeah, I, I used to work in a game store back in the 90s, and uh, a, a friend of mine that Brendan knows, Robert Rosenthal, gave me an adventure to run as a demo for Colt in the store. It was an adventure he wrote for Colt, where early on the characters all die, and they don't quite realize they're dead. But in Colt, you know, the universe is an illusion, and so you never really die. If you, you know, experience death, you kind of go into the, the afterlife to some extent and probably reincarnate. But... Uh, or end up in hell or something. But uh, basically, I was running it. I ran this demo in the store after hours, and this this couple showed up. You know, this is this is like a pretty heavy horror game. And this couple shows up with like their their seven year old kid. And they're like, yeah, we want to play. And I'm like, uh, I, oh, this is this is a horror game. You you probably don't understand to play. Oh, he loves horror movies, you know. And uh, I'm like, oh, great. And so, first of all, I'm like, you know, I don't care how comfortable they are. I'm basically like censoring the adventure at every point. So I'm like, I've already kind of defanged the adventure as I'm running it. And these people could not take, they, they, they just could, could not in any way 
like follow any of the clues. I kept getting more and more heavy handed with the clues of where they needed to go and what they needed. Hey, there's, you know, you know, like they needed to go to this factory. And it's like everyone they talked to, boy, have you heard about what's going on at the factory? I was just like really trying to yell. And they would just be oblivious. It's like they just, okay, well, we're going to hang out at the bar some more. And, and you know, and then they, they started and they kind of get into a fight. It's like nobody could die in that adventure. So I didn't even have the final game master option. I'm just going to kill the, kill the party and like end the adventure. It's like that wasn't an option. It was just... <laughs> It was just, it, it, I mean, it was literally the game just turned into purgatory where I was stuck there with these players who would do nothing. That's and kind there was of fitting, nothing though. I could That's do kind of fitting them. that it would become purgatory for you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So that, that is my warning. If you were in the afterlife, remember, your players cannot die at this point, and so they can linger and haunt you for hours. So, so... I had a, an interesting twist on that very issue, which I'll, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to now, and then I'll explain some more stuff. Yeah, I, I had first I ran my players through. I was using a Chinese setting where there's like a Chinese type hell, like Du, and they had like this one had eight levels, but it's it's bit modeled on the ten ten courts of hell, and the players had to go there while they were still alive in order to get something. So they they were sort of, you know, adventuring into the various realms of, 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 the, of, of the afterlife and going into these little pocket realms that existed as well. But then later in the game, uh, another character was having a duel with a really powerful character, and he didn't back down at any point in the duel, even when it turned against him, and he got obliterated, and he died. And so, so he actually went to the afterlife. And, uh, and I decided that there was like this zone between the courts and reality. And that's where you go when you first die. And then, and that's sort of like your opportunity to accrue good merit and, 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 or, or material objects that you can use to bribe the various judges of hell. And, and so this player was not having any of it though. And so the the way that the afterlife worked here is if you if you die in this in this sort of middle state then you go to the the you know to the different courts and so he just ended up killing himself midway through the adventure and uh uh and so you know he only got so far um but the interesting thing was in order to incorporate the other player characters into that thing that was going on with him i had a ritual performed that allowed them to go there when they were dreaming and so their souls sort of projected into the afterlife uh, in their dreams. And it was sort of amusing because the players who were being projected there were actually having a good time and enjoyed the afterlife. And the player <laughs> who was there didn't want to be there. He just wanted to move on to his next character. So I think it's one of those things when you game the afterlife, you have to be aware of the player's tastes for sure because it's a very different flavor. Um, and some people like it and take to it. Some people won't really enjoy it. Um, but yeah, so that's my story at least. <laughs> one, one, you know, at the start of the podcast, you said that there's different ways to play the afterlife. And I think people who've been listening to us here at Game Lab know that I generally run a Doctor Who campaign. Doctor Who is a, obviously a science fiction show and uh, that doesn't really delve into the afterlife per se because one of the concepts of the show is that everything can be described by science. Even within the fiction of the show and the series, there are different ways that the afterlife comes up. So within our campaign, um, I've had a chance to run a few multiple Time Lord stories. So going off of some of like the great Doctor Who stories, like the Three Doctors or the Five Doctors or Day of the Doctor, um, we've had an opportunity to have some of those Time Lords, because it's a time travel game, even those Time Lords who have died right you know or regenerated into new time lords or the same time lord a different body uh, are able to come back in some of the stories so that's one concept that i've used within that science fiction game to bring back sort of a an afterlife concept in which you know sometimes it's fun uh, to have those characters come back likewise you mentioned the matrix um you know the time lord repository of all knowledge and that includes people when they're going to die they download their the, the time lords uh download the knowledge of that person into the matrix and they kind of live on um but there's a couple other tricks that i found in the game that works really well and that is alternate timelines so one thing that i do when i run the doctor who campaign is 
Um, I'll sort of have an anniversary game. So if our group is five years on and everybody's kind of changed characters and stuff like that, um, sometimes I'll run a game in which characters can be plucked from their timeline and can come to the table and play again. Or another trick that I like to do in the campaign is to return to a module, especially if that adventure had uh, a couple of deaths in it or something like that, and allow the players to replay it um, as if they were in a different timeline or a different dimension. And so that's kind of interesting because sometimes people go, oh, I wish I had never run into that room. My character would still be around. And all of a sudden they find themselves in an adventure where they're that old character and they can change their timeline. And that's a really interesting thing to do because some people run back into the room again and take the odds against the dice because they feel like that was the right thing to do originally. And other people will completely avoid that quote-unquote timeline and intentionally change the course of the game. And so I think there's something neat in a game that's science-based or science fiction-based, of course, um, I think it's neat how people deal with a second chance and, in a sense, get an afterlife or a second chance at, at their course of action and how some people will try to change it and some people won't, but will hope the dice go better. So, so yeah, and I guess, how do you guys handle things like, you know, and obviously, Nick, this wouldn't apply to Doctor Who, but well, maybe, it would, maybe, maybe there's something I'm unaware of, but... Uh, like resurrection and raised dead and things like that. What if you know those always seem to be things that people either go they sort of embrace the idea of it or they they do something to make it uh, less prevalent in the campaign. I've had some GMs that just won't even go there. Um, it's there. It's pricey, pricey enough that they don't want to die, even with its <laughs> availability. But. Uh, you know, I had parties clubbed together to resurrect a, a dead dead party member. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, other than taking a, a, a hit as far as your health uh, go for a little bit, you know, I use original D&D, and basically you're down a week if you if you get a raised dead cast on you. And uh, never had a resurrection, now. That's way high level. And uh, campaigns rarely ever progress to that point. I had plenty of raised dead, you know, 5,000 silver. It's a pretty big hit to the party treasury. I, I played in a great game in uh, at GaryCon 6, just because we talked about GaryCon at the top of the podcast. Uh, and Simon Todd was at that game, who writes for Monty Dots. And Bob Brinkman, who I talked about earlier, was a part of that game. Uh, uh, Andrew Gowan was playing at that game. And we were actually in an adventure, and this is an interesting way of looking at the afterlife, in which we had somebody who was strong enough to do a resurrection spell. And as we were going through the campaign, we actually came face-to-face -face with the major bad guy in the adventure. And the major bad guy was like uh, a, a, a white or something like that. You know what I mean? Some, some ghost or whatever. The group decided to cast the resurrection spell on the villain rather than on any of the players. I had something which like that. Which made this character human, and then we could defeat it at a much better level than oh, we had. That's a great idea. That's... Yeah, to the group of players, because using this very difficult spell, and you know, just as like just a few minutes ago, Robert was saying, like, you come out of that, and you're not like strong, and you're weak, you know. They used resurrection as a way to defeat this undead villain, which I thought was brilliant. It was one of the, the best games at a table at a convention that I'd ever played in. And everybody was just sharp and clever. And, um, and, and I think there is a place in a game for, for resurrection, not just to defeat a villain like that, but some characters, especially if they're particularly like, uh, interesting or, or valuable to a storyline. Sometimes you don't want to lose that character if they're important to a, a, a plot thread. So I think there is a place for for resurrection spells and you know bringing people back from the dead or whatever it might be. So yeah, I, 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 I we actually had a resurrection in a in the Dungeon Crawl Classics game I'm playing in two weeks ago, where uh, 
I'm playing the wizard in the party, and I I just got really super arrogant because I'd had a number of recent wins, and the thief and I went alone into this other wizard's tower and got mauled by the tigers guarding it, and I went into negative hit point territory, but he flat out got killed by the time the rest of the party showed up and took care of the tigers, and... You know, and I, so I was able to be healed by the, the priest of Cthulhu in our party, which gave me a, a great religious awakening. And I've embraced Cthulhu <laughs> as my personal savior now. But uh, but to bring the uh, to bring the thief back, we had a, a magical artifact, which was I, I think the uh, the blade of resurrection or something. And you have to cut a limb off the uh, person you're resurrecting as part of the ritual, and. We could not remember if the thief was right-handed or left-handed, though. So we took a guess, and we guessed wrong. So <laughs> them's the breaks. <laughs> them's the breaks. Yeah, yeah. Since then, he's managed to get like a weird plant hand that's like grown in place. That's another thing that he's 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 traded for, which doesn't doesn't work like a proper hand. So he doesn't quite have a handle on it yet, but. Uh, but yeah, that, so Resurrection has been an interesting and new thing. But I actually haven't used it very much in campaigns I've run myself. I don't, I don't have any, uh, any uh, stories from the Game Master side where anything particularly innovative has happened with it. Well, I, I play in a lot of settings where there aren't necessarily rules specific to that sort of thing, but there are gods that exist in the setting where that sort of development might emerge. And, and those are often fun, where the players kind of have to try something and see if it helps bring somebody back. And you know, sometimes <laughs> it does, sometimes it has unusual, unexpected consequences. Um, what about playing things like uh, when the characters become undead, or their bodies get turned into something after? Like I, I was telling Adam uh, on our, our Tuesday game that... Um, I had, uh, or actually, uh, maybe I wasn't. Adam, were you at the Tuesday game this week, or was I? Uh, I was not at the okay, Tuesday game. So I, I was no. probably telling Kenny then that uh, <laughs> um, that I, I, I had uh, turned my players into flesh golems after they died one time. And, uh, you know, so they, they awakened, and they were, you know, they were now in, like, flesh golem bodies. And, uh, you know, and it's, you know, do you guys allow for that sort of thing in your own campaigns? I guess, I guess being like a Cyberman might be like the equivalent in Doctor Who. Um, Absolutely. I, I haven't had anybody stupid enough to try to do that <laughs> until quite recently. <laughs> so there's a player who's on a collision course. He wants to become undead and he's throwing him. Oh, he's, he's doing trying the to right... become undead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wants to be an undead overlord. <laughs> but he's doing... He's he's committed to the concept, which is which, which is the key to making it work. Mm. Most players, when they mess around with it, it's just a way of uh, getting more power. Now, mm. some of that with this player, but he's like a. It's the difference between you know lawful greedy, and really this is a part of my character. He yeah. really wants to become an undead overlord, and he's committed to the whole thing and. The, the the player the current player is, is committed, so you know it, it. You know I I have role playing campaigns where I have referee campaigns where players played evil PCs and uh, rolled with it, and uh, you know so I'm gonna roll with this, see how it works out. But uh, in the past, when players tried to flirt with the concept, they know it was not without consequence, and it, and it for the most part it always makes them go. Well, you know, maybe maybe I'll do this instead, you know, because, you know, if you become an undead overlord, you better have created a bubble around yourself that you can that that where you live your daily life, because normal society isn't going to accept your. No. Well, there's a whole slew of issues with that because number one you have to rise to the level of overlord in the undead hierarchy like like there are That's presumably true. other undead that are just as qualified if not more to become the local undead overlord you, and, you've been dead one day yeah. we're supposed to respect and, you come on but but the the, the holy crusaders that are going to come after you are just, you know a nightmare to deal with so you know that i i feel like undeath is something that's easy to balance out provided the consequences are there in the setting um, though obviously you can, you know, you, it, there's a lot of power when people become undead, but I, I think if you, if with the right group and the right game master, it can work. I, I think there's 
one other way of, you know, we can look at this concept of like undead in its own way. And you just made me think of something just because of you brought up the Doctor Who thing. And that is that sometimes it's worth killing characters, but the characters aren't actually dead, right? So the disappearance of a character and the possible future reappearance of a character in a campaign is a trick that I think can carry a lot of merit, right? So what I mean by that is, like, everybody sees this character die, right? It's a, it's a, it's a Hollywood plot we see used all the time, right? We saw James Bond die, but let's allow James Bond to go undercover deeper because everybody thinks he's dead now and he can, like, kind of, like, do this other investigation. So um, taking the opportunity to fool the rest of the party into thinking that something is going on I think is a really great trope for a lot of different role-playing games where you think that somebody is dead and, like, people mourn them. I've had situations in which characters have presumably died in my Doctor Who game, and then they went undercover or whatever. And then I forced the other players um, through, through the machinations of the game. I didn't force the players, but, like, um, they were forced to give eulogies for this person. But the person was actually alive and listening to the eulogies about them. So they, they didn't know, which was like a really neat twist because they had to like, yeah, I didn't always get along with Bob, but he was there when I needed it. And I remember the time Bob gave me medical and I was for sure going to like bleed out. So like, I think that was good. Bob was my favorite guy and I don't know how I'll live on beyond this. And to have that person be there and hear the eulogy, it, you know, which... which you know, I, I made all of the characters, like, the, you know, the, the lead character made all of the characters give a eulogy for this character. They thought the character was dead, so it was interesting to hear what they actually had to say, only for a number of adventures later for that person to actually be alive. And then there was this holy smokes moment, like, what? He's not really dead? Like, okay. Um, and I think there's a lot of value to that, you know, playing with the concept of death. And then bringing that character back while they weren't actually dead is, a, in a sense, an afterlife scenario, right? Okay, yeah. How is everybody else has moved on? Everybody else has a different opinion of what happened. Now this person's back in the mix. What does that look like? No, that could definitely be. I, w I would love to see a game where the GM sort of plans way ahead and has an NPC fake his death for some grand nefarious scheme. And then, you know... A year or two later brings the character back. That would be very gratifying. Um, but you'd have to do it right. It's, yeah. it's all about the circumstances. I mean, yeah. if I can pull it off, I'll pull it off. But I, 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 I just go with the flow so much that I, it's rare. Like in real life, I mean, how often can you pull that off? Well, you wouldn't <laughs> no. want to be doing that every... Like, that would be something that you wouldn't want to throw at your players probably more than once, number one, because if it, if it yeah. happened multiple times, it would be, you know... Every really, time we kill the bad yeah. guy, he comes back again. But, why bother? But what yeah. I'm thinking is if you had an NPC uh, who had some kind of plan in mind, you know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't know what the exact scenario is, but if he, like, wants revenge on the party or if he just has some other thing that he's trying to achieve and faking the death, you know would play into that it, it, it might be a an interesting thing to sort of have happen and have it but really wait it out like not you know do it and then be like okay next week he comes back like do it and then never mention it again for like two years and then have him come back um yeah. I, I think Adam, we have brought up something really good that i think's worth talking about and exploring <coughs> and that is that making of, of how you handle a villain who comes back because we all have certain villains that are great villains and in order for them to be great villains they have to be mortal right like you have to be able to kill them or you have to be able to defeat them it's great to bring back those villains but you can't do it so often that the players feel like there's no real chance to have a victory or to have a win so i don't know if you want to expand on that adam but i think that was a great point oh well I don't know. I mean, I think that is the point itself. But uh, uh, what was I going to say? I, I did have a point that I just just lost. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I will. I will say this as an aside while I wait for my point to come back. Is Brendan? You were right. You did talk to me about the flesh golems, but it wasn't at the game. It was at the Friday podcast. Oh, okay, before. okay. I'm, I was mistaken. so you, you're not crazy. All so right. was I'm me just, and I'm Ken just very stupid. Him. That's all. I just. Uh, I just no, no, no. Wrong. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, I think it's that's a delicate point too because you can, 
I found <sighs> players react very differently. I tend not to bring my my NPCs uh, back from the dead after they've been killed by the party like that, uh, unless it was like planned in advance. You know, like they were they were obviously doing something to to protect themselves. Um, the reason why is because I found the players when I did do that in the past they can react negatively to it. So it's the kind of thing you have to be careful about when you do. You have to, it has to, I would say I would say it's sort of about having the right group for that sort of development. If they're if they're on board with it, I would say go for it. If if it's a group that is going to feel like that's an underhanded GM trick, you might want to be cautious mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do remember what I was going to say as we actually have we are in the process of faking a death in the Dungeon Crawl Classics game. Should right you be now saying this or people going to be are you spoiling anything for people in the game, or? No, well, we're, I'm a player. Oh, we're, okay. we're the players doing it. So, okay. and, the, and the, the, you know, the GM knows about it. So, but uh, yeah, and it's 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 due to a, a weird, unforeseen thing. It's because in this adventure, there's a wizards tournament going on, and one of the wizards in the rival wizard in this tournament stole the fighter's horse at one point. You know the party's horse. We had to negotiate to get him back, and then he he wasn't sure the horse he was getting traded back was really his horse, or it might be an illusion. And so I cast a spell magic to uh, you know get get to check. I'm like, look, if it's an illusion, it'll just be it'll be fine. You know, and the spell magic will make it go away. And I you know I, I didn't even believe the horse wasn't real. I just did it to, to comfort the fighter. But you should never flippantly use magic in dungeon crawl classics because I was going to say that yes. Why why would you just use magic for a trivial purpose like that? I know that was stupid. Here's here, there's there's a whole cascade of effects that are going to come from this decision. So keep listening. But uh, <laughs> I I. I, I got an amazing roll. I rolled a twenty. It's like fantastic, you think. But not only that, I destroyed. Uh, you know, instead of just casting the spell on the horse, I also destroyed every potion in the party. It's like the that the priest had all these like healing potions, all water now and everything. And everyone's magical items stopped working for three days. And it was it was just. But that that that's just the beginning. That I mean, that was funny by itself. You know, uh, but. Then, then, like, basically we're negotiating with this other wizard. And it turns out, like, a few days later, this thief shows up in my tower. You know, she breaks in through the window. And it turns out she is actually masquerading as that other wizard. Because that she stole that wizard's invitation and was, like, there in disguise. And, and basically she was... Being a high-level thief, she could use scrolls. So she had like all these scrolls in her robes that she was using to cover up the fact she wasn't really a wizard. She was just using scrolls, and I had destroyed every one of her scrolls. So right now she's like, "Okay, well, look, let's work together. You can help me fake my death, so I can get off this island and everything." So we're in the process of she, she's got we're kind of she've gone from being enemies to now we're kind of forming this uneasy truce where she's going to help me with some things. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. So we'll see how this whole faking a death thing goes. But we're thinking of uh, faking a duel between each other and her, uh, her, her then having her wizard identity be dead and then, uh, then being the, the thief instead. But it's, it's complicated. But, uh, <laughs> you want to hear my Dungeon Crawl classic story? Please, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was in on the playtest for Dungeon Crawl Classic and Joseph Goodman asked me to run a session at a local convention, so I did. And uh, you guys heard of Operation Unfathomable by Joseph Schultes? Oh yeah. He was he played a wizard in that game, and he had one spell and enlarge. So they go. We start off the adventure with the Emerald Sorcerer adventure. I forgot his full title. So they go to the dungeon door. Then they go to the to the entrance, the first door of the whole module and uh, it's locked and they were debating what to do with it and Jason goes, I will cast enlarge on it. It's my spell. Okay. We'll enlarge it, it will pop out of the frame and we'll be inside. There we go. Yeah, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> so we cast it. And he too rolls a natural 20. The door expands to like some 2,000% of its, of its normal size. So I rolled Okay, dude, it's popping out of there like a bat out of hell. I'm going to roll a D-stick. One to two is the left to you. 
five to six that are right to you, three to four it coming head on to you, and you got to make a dexterity saving throw. And I rolled a three, and he rolled a save, and he fail, failed, and he had one hit point, <laughs> and he dies. Uh, so it was the first adventure I ever ran where the character was literally killed by the door, the very first door <laughs> of the dungeon. I, I have, I too have a door death story. I've probably told it here before. There was a uh, there was a Ravenloft uh, adventure uh, anthology. I think it was called Book of Crips, and it had an adventure in there on uh, in Lamordia. And you go to uh, uh, the the do the domain lord is connected to this mad scientist who um, who's kind of like Victor Frankenstein. And you go to his estate, and the the door is so weathered and and and, and ruined by by the climate that it's got these thick splinters coming off of it. And I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think it did like a D2 damage or something like that. And it was enough to, to kill one of my first level characters in the game. And so he, <laughs> he, he knocked in the door and he got a splinter and he died. Or he I, 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 I can't remember if he died or if he passed out. But, it, but either way, it was a really sort of, uh, it was very anticlimactic, but also probably one of the most memorable <laughs> moments. Um, and uh, I, I often, I, I, it's, it's one of the books I wish I kept because I really want to go back and see if I was running it right, if it was, you know, if there was anything in there that I misunderstood. Um, it is funny how RPGs, how anticlimaxes often are the most memorable things. Like theoretically, you'd think anticlimaxes should never be memorable, but they're always things you're like, wow. <laughs> I, I, I had a, I had a, um, a player in one of my groups who, we had a big like final scene with the bad villain in my Ravenloft campaign way back in like 2001 or something. And, yeah. and, uh, and the, it just became a really pathetic retreat on the villains part right away. He, he ended up dying and like wedged in a window. And I know I've told Adam this story many times before. Uh, but the, but the point of it was, it was very anticlimactic, but later on one of the players came back to me and he said, that was the best like final showdown with a villain I've ever had. And I was like, "Why?" Because I, I was—I thought it was just terrible. And <laughs> and he said, "No, because we 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 killed him early on, and you let it happen. You didn't do anything to like prevent it. You know, he died, like you know, embarrassingly in a windowsill. And and so it makes it real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what it was is it just—he just felt that like I wasn't shifting the scenery behind the scenes on him, and he appreciated yeah. that. Um, so sometimes anticlimactic stuff—it's all—it's also just you know." It it, it 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 sort of it doesn't feel gratifying in the moment as a GM sometimes, but it's it's better uh, in the long haul, uh, and, it, and it can be memorable. So, well, and, and I think there's a great reminder there that as we play games, it's about the entertainment of everyone at the table. Yeah. And while while, while we're expecting like <laughs> our our machinations and our plans as game masters to be memorable and great. That's maybe not what the players are looking for. Maybe the players just want to get out of there with their hides intact for a chance, and they're happy to get out of the game for a chance. So, like, absolutely. However, I, I love your knock knock who's dead story. So, like, that's a <laughs> yeah. That was <laughs> that was definitely a fun one. Um, but we've we've gone past the one hour mark, so I'm gonna I'm gonna end the episode there. But uh, we'll be back. Me and Adam are gonna be back in the next day or so with our Return of Condor Heroes discussion. On Tuesday, I'll be putting up my session recording of the Lady 87 campaign. And on Friday, I'm very excited. We're going to be doing the, 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 the House of Flying Daggers movie. Mm. So, yeah. um, so you know, we did Hero on Friday. And I'm, I'm really, this is my favorite in the series. So I'm looking forward to that. And then we're going to, after that, we'll do Curse of the Golden Flower. It's part of sort of a, uh, sort of a sequence of films. And, and yeah, so uh, we will be back on and we will talk to you later. Bye.